Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 as we continue our study through the, the book of Romans? Titled this series of messages, Not Ashamed, because Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel. It was the power of God unto salvation. And in this book, he gives us really a very concise and careful expo exposition on the meaning of the doctrine of the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of grace all about? If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read through this chapter together? Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law... A man married, a man married excuse me, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And so then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is all called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity for, afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do, not, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law or principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make things that are quite complex simple and easy to understand and deeply digestible into our souls. 
Because, Lord, we know that we are often guilty of hearing things, but never really knowing how to put them into action and to play in our lives. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would activate your truth in a way that we would go away today having a sense that we understand your heart better than we did when we came in. Grant us this grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last time in chapter 6, Paul talked about how that through Christ we've entered into this new position with God, that we are the objects of His grace and His mercy. As Paul would say later to the Ephesians, that we are no longer simply inhabitants of earth, but we are now seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That is ultimately our destiny and our destination. But in saying that, he, in chapter 7, then moves on to a new problem that we have to deal with, and that is my inability to consistently avoid sinful behavior. Um, despite the fact that we are told that we are forgiven, that we are justified or declared in right relationship with God, that we are now at peace with God, that the war between God and man is over through Christ, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, despite all of that, I, I still find myself sinning. And I know that's a shock to many of you to think that, but it's something that I do with great regularity, and I do it repeatedly. So that when Paul opens this seventh chapter, and he tells us that we are no longer belong to sin, that nor are we controlled by the sinful nature because we have died to that, he says, which once bound us, I get confused. Um, because like Paul, as he said in verse 25 at the end of this reading, he says, in my mind... Yeah, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So there's this kind of dichotomous conflict going on inside of me that in my mind, I'm saying, God, I assent to, assent to and I agree with and I submit to your truth and I want to walk with you and I want to follow you. And I can be saying that in one moment and then something can happen and immediately I turn into this other person, this other side of myself, this kind of Jekyll and Hyde moment where I'm sitting in my car, driving in traffic, worshiping God as praise choruses are playing over the stereo, and suddenly some son of a motherless goat cuts me off in traffic, and my goat nature comes out. Am I alone? Thank you. Thank you. Paul clearly understands our consternation <laughs> because he goes on to admit in, in verse 15, he says, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I hate, I find myself doing. And in verse 18, he says, I desire to do the good, but I find myself not doing the good. In verse 21, he says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law, or more accurately, another dynamic, another principle at work in the members of my body. And that thing he calls is the sin living in me, or we loosely refer to as our sin nature. So how do we respond to that? And this is really where the conundrum develops, because none of us can avoid seeing that dynamic in ourselves. We may go for months without expressing uh, anything in French, but then hit our thumb with a hammer, and suddenly we become bilingual. We speak a language that we've kept hidden from the better people in our life, and particularly as a man from my wife and children. But in that moment, suddenly this expression comes out, and I'm thinking to myself, where did that come from? Well, it comes from having visited France. Um, and so we decide, well, I see this, and this is not right. I'm going to address this thing. And, and if I leave that blank, you can fill in any number of things that might be present in your life now. But it's this thing is saying, I'm going to deal with it. And what I call this is the decision to get better. The decision to get better, which really deteriorates into nothing less than legalism. 
What is legalism? Well, Warren Wiersbe put it this way. He said, it is the belief that I can become holy and please God by obeying laws, by keeping rules and regulations. It is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. So that when we look at these things in our life, maybe whole huge areas of our life, and we decide what I'm going to do is I'm going to read and I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast and I'm going to serve and I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to submit and I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to give and so forth and so on. The list goes. And we really begin to think like some kind of fourth century Syrian monk that we're going to starve sin into submission and become pure as a result in God's eyes. But all too soon we discover that sin is not on the outside. It's not an outside problem that can be fixed by some kind of external activity or discipline. As Paul says in verse 17, and again in verse 20, he says, sin is living in me. Literally, the word living could be translated, it cohabitates with us. So that you, it's sharing the same biological sphere called my body. It's sharing with the Holy Spirit. It's living in the same neighborhood, not even the name, same neighborhood. It's got a bedroom in the house of my life with the Spirit of God. Rather, what we begin to discover is that sin is something that's hardwired on the inside, part of the basic operating system that always has the ability to override whatever application we try to download. At best, what rules and regulations and disciplines can do is they can bury my sinfulness for a season but there is a zombie characteristic to my sin. It keeps digging itself up from the grave. It pops open whatever casket I've nailed it down in, and it crawls back and begins to eat away at your brain. And suddenly you say, it's back. I thought I defeated that in the past. So failing being able to overcome it by our disciplines by our rules and regulations. Failing to get over it, and we eventually always do, no matter what it is, we tend to give up, concluding at least in terms of spiritual things that we're in the loser class of religious thing. I think it's one of the main reasons that we find men so often avoid serious religious pursuit because they sit back and say, well, I'm just not a spiritual man. And, and in saying that, we're kind of agreeing with Paul. Paul said in verse 14, he says, I am unspiritual. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's sarkikos. It means that I have the nature of, of, of the spirit or not. He says, because I am unspiritual, I'm without spiritual dynamic in my life. I'm sold as a slave in sin. And so we come to this conclusion, well, I'm just not a spiritual man. I've heard people say that to me. I'm just not a spiritual man. And so we think in time that I was, I'm worse off now that I have become a follower of Jesus than before. Because at least before I was ignorant of how bad I was, but now I'm no longer blissfully ignorant. I, I know the truth and yet I find myself falling short of it with absolute consistency. So that Paul says, what is the uh, normal response of a person? He says, what a wretched man I am. That word wretched is, is a strong word in the original, a strong word in English. It means pathetic. It, it means extremely unhappy. It describes somebody who is in a state of emotional distress because I am stuck in a situation that I don't know how to rectify. And so we end up, thirdly, giving in. When we can't find ourselves able to get over it, we finally give up on getting over it, and eventually we fall into the trap of just giving in to it, and we begin to become what's called a libertine, libertinism. It's the idea, if I can't beat them, I might as well join them. And this often does provide a momentary sense of relief, 
But what eventually follows also is a greater sense of guilt and shame. I mean, all you have to do is ask Jonah. I think when Jonah got on the boat and started heading towards Tarshish, which was probably Spain, the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, there was this momentary sense of relief. I have escaped the command of God. I, I don't have to yield to God. But all you have to do is, is read his little book and you realize there is no more miserable person on the planet than a man or woman who is trying to run from God. And besides, no matter where or how far or how hard you run, soon enough you begin to find yourself echoing the words of the psalmist when he says, where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And suddenly we find ourselves confronting the very thing about ourselves that we were hoping that we could completely eliminate, and that's that I'm a sinner. Not just part of the time or to a limited degree, but it's something that is very characteristic of who we are. I mean, let me put it in the most extreme way I can, that if I'm breathing, I'm probably sinning. And you become more aware of this the more you become aware of God, because the more you become aware of God, the more you become aware of the holiness of God, and the more you see the holiness of God, the more you recognize that you aren't. And you realize that sin is not simply, you know, the big issues that are listed, the top 10, you know, murder, stealing, coveting, adultery. It, those are certainly sins, but those are like the, the top 10 things that stand out. But there's a whole list of little things that you find in yourself. There's a selfishness, there's a pettiness, there's a criticalness, there's a anger and jealousy and envy and strife, politics. All these things are there. And you realize that there's this constant confrontation going on. And so what Paul does in this chapter is he's trying to say, let's begin to delineate what the law can do for us and, and what it can't do. And the very first thing he tells us is that we need to understand that the purpose of the law is to simply lay a foundation for right and wrong in our life. Now, when he uses this term law, there's more than 16, 613 commandments in the Old Testament alone. So the chances that you are breaking one of them is pretty high. 613, and you're probably transgressing at least one or more at any given moment in time. But the law was more than that, or the way Paul uses it here is not just simply limited to the written code or the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament writings. It basically refers to a inner moral code. In fact, in writing in chapter 2, verse 14, he told us, when the Gentiles do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. In fact, one of the things that we know from a sociological perspective is that when we have studied cultures not only around the world today, but throughout as far as we can go back and record history, we find that the basic principles of the Ten Commandments are incumbent in every legal system, every social structure and contract that has ever existed. That basically... This seems to be, again, part of the hardwiring. If, if a disposition towards sin is hardwired into me, there's also hardwired into me a sense of what is right and wrong, good and true, false. This is kind of part of who we are. In fact, John said in the beginning of his gospel in verse 9, he says that Jesus was the true light that gives light to every man who comes into the world that God basically puts enlightenment in every one of us at the moment of our conception in our mother's womb that predisposes us to know that there are some things that are right and there's some things are wrong. So that when a little child starts saying things like, it's not fair, they've just rendered a moral perspective on life. 
They recognize an inequality, that there is this thing called fair and unfair. There is this thing that's right, and there's this thing that's wrong. So that I found, even with my own children, I didn't have to necessarily teach them that there was right and wrong. They figured it out very quickly, and they also learned to lie very quickly. <laughs> I'll never forget when Brian was three years old, and at the time, he, he and his one of his brothers shared a bedroom, and his, his brother, who was eight years older, just turning it into the teen years, was not happy with the arrangement. You know, a 13-year-old doesn't want a, a three-year-old around. I, I mean, you've noticed that. And so he locked Brian out of the bedroom one day. And Brian's hitting on the bedroom door and hitting on the door and hitting on the door, and his brother's just ignoring him and taunting him on the other side, as older brothers are called by God to do. And finally, in frustration, this little boy who had just gotten a brand new pair of cowboy boots pulled back with his right leg as far as he could and he kicked the door and put a toe of his boot right through the door. One of those solid holocore doors. <laughs> and immediately his brother opened the door and says, oh, you are in so much trouble. And he came and of course, as his duty as an older brother was, he reported the criminal offense to the abiding authority, which happened to be me sitting in the living room already knowing what had transpired. And so I went up to this little three-year-old and I said, what happened? He says, I don't know. <laughs> I said, how did that hole get in your door? Jimmy did it. I said, Jimmy did it? Who's Jimmy? You can't see him, he's invisible. And I thought... Here, he's learned a perfectly valuable life skill without any training from me whatsoever. <laughs> but you see, behind lying is an awareness that there is such a thing as truth. It's a lot like the atheist saying, there is no God, to which I answer, respond, there is no what? If there is no such thing, how do we even have a term for it? You see, that's a simple fact that God says, this is, this is written in you. And this is where Paul begins. He says, you have to understand that this sense of right and wrong is, is something that's an abiding reality. There is a fundamental, universal, moral code of common sense right and wrong, a shared value that runs through every religion, every philosophy, every ideology that has ever existed. The second Paul goes on to remind his readers, that this law, this sense of right and wrong, he says in verse 12, is holy, righteous, and good. Now, that may seem obvious to you and I, but let's not forget that we live in an age which likes to ask questions, is, is there really such a thing as evil? Which makes me want to go over and stomp on their foot. Because as soon as you do, they're going to immediately remember, yes, there is, it's called pain, and you did a bad thing to me. In fact, this was a hot discussion in colleges around the United States until 9-11. And suddenly, as people grappled with the tragedy of that event and the utter wrongness of it and the utter evil of it, no longer were they saying, is there such a thing of evil? But they began to say, how do men engage in such evil? Having assumed previously that man is basically good, and yet they could do something so horrifically evil. Well, that's basically what Paul had to deal with. In fact, today I think you'll find that most, if not all, men will agree. Even though we may violate the right that we know, we hope that our neighbor doesn't. So the man who is a thief hopes his neighbor isn't because he doesn't want his neighbor stealing from him even though he will steal from his neighbor. And evil men throughout history, and this may uh, uh, be kind of fascinating to you, I don't think we even think along this line, but if you really study men like Hitler and Stalin and others of that nature, every one of them yearned to be perceived by future generations as good men. That even though they did horrific genocidal evils, that when you think about just in the Soviet Union alone, there were over 130 million people who perished under communism. I mean, it's amazing, amazing figures 
that we, we're coming to. And when you realize such evil, and yet Stalin, who was at the heart of that genocide, wanted to be perceived as having done all this evil for good. Maybe thirdly, maybe and more importantly, the law of God is designed as a way of informing us that we aren't good, that we are sinners. When Paul said that I know that in, my, in me, and I was thinking about in my fleshly nature, there no, no good thing dwells. He says in verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And not just sinners in the simple sense of the word, but he goes on to say, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that sin might become utterly sinful. That I might lose this illusion that sin is just a light case of the flu. That it is a mortal, fatal, deadly disease that creates endless human misery and it kills 100% of the time. I'm reminded of uh, Ignace uh, Semmelweis. I know that's a name on your lips as well. 1845, he was a practicing surgeon in a Hungarian, in a Budapest, Hungary hospital, a maternity ward. And he observed a dynamic that 30% of the women who came into the hospital to have deliveries developed what they called childbirth fever and died. 30% mortality rate. Women who were having babies in homes with midwives had about a 4 or 5% mortality rate. And so he began to look and try to figure it out. And he realized that what was happening is that the surgeons were delivering babies and their hands were covered with blood, their garments were covered with blood. They considered that to be a sign of their expertise and skill, the bloodier they were. And they would just simply go from patient to patient to patient. Well, and the whole idea of germ theory wasn't even discovered for another 30 years by Pasteur and Lister. So they, when he began to look at it, he said, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to start washing my hands after each delivery, and suddenly the mortality rate of his patients went to 1% from 30%. Because he couldn't explain why this was the case, the other doctors rejected his theory, eventually was dismissed from his position, and they continued to kill women in large numbers for the next 30 years until science caught up with what he observed. But, you know, I think in so many ways it reminds me of the dynamic that we see in sin because people live in this world and engage in all sorts of destructive activities that the Bible says, don't do this. And, and they look at the Bible and saying, well, it's so, you know, restrictive. It's so prudish. Can't do this. Can't do that. As if God simply is sitting in heaven on his throne making up rules to make our lives more complicated. Now, that may be true of the IRS, but that's not true of God. You know, that's, that may be what Congress does, but it isn't what God does. God says, don't do this because if you do this, what will come with it is misery. And if you continue to live in that, it'll lead to death. And yet, like the physicians in, in this hospital... They just simply looked and said, well, where's the proof? And what God says, I gave you my law as the proof, that the man who violates that will die, that sin does kill. And I will let it do that so that you will understand how utterly sinful sin is. I was part of the, the hippie free love generation Drug, sex, and rock and roll. And I was 19 when I got saved, and I got saved from a lot of things that, given the trajectory that my life was going, uh, the downward spiral that my life was going, I can only imagine where I would have ended up had God not saved me. In fact, I don't have to imagine long. All you have to do is go to a high school reunion and you get a chance to see that there's a price to be paid 
There's a toll that comes not only by the, the effect of those decisions and those lifestyles, but also the number of people who didn't make it that far. And you realize that sin is, a, is, a, is an utterly sinful thing. It's a destructive thing. But there's even a fourth thing that the law does. The, the law, ironically, gives vitality to sin. Listen now, Paul describes it in verse 9. He says, when the commandment came, when it was codified, if you will, in the, in, in the law of God, in the Mosaic law, he says, sin sprang to life, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Sin deceived me. In other words, how does sin deceive you? It tells you there's no consequences to sin. There's no downside here. You can do this and it won't affect you. You know, if pot's legal, smoke as much as you want, no problem. It deceives me into believing that I can do certain things and there's no consequence that's going to happen. And he says, and through and through the commandment, put me to death. What Paul essentially is saying, I believe, is that you and I possess this perverse attraction to the things that are forbidden. When in Proverbs 9, Solomon said, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. Speaking on the part of the man and woman who lives a life with disregard to God's law, there's a kind of an idea that, well, it's forbidden, so it has a special sweetness to it. And you see it when people are in preparation for some event in which they intend to excess. They contend to behave in a way that's in the extreme, that there's a giddiness, there's an excitement as if I'm getting to do something that is special and unique and set apart. And what Paul was saying is that when God began to say to me, thou shalt not do X, Y, Z, there was a part of me that began to become activated and say, why not? What is it about getting in a car that makes me not able to stop at 70, but to have to go to at least 75. I mean, I, I don't really, I, I, I think it's this dynamic that I can get on the freeway and 70 is probably fine. I figured it out once, and if I drive from here to Seattle, I'm going to save about 10 minutes. but I got to do it. <laughs> what is that? You see, that's what Paul said, is that as soon as we realize that something is forbidden, we find ourselves wanting to get as close to the edge as we can, hoping that we don't slip and fall off. But oftentimes we do. That's what the law can do for me. It, it can <laughs> what it cannot do he continues on to tell us, first of all, that sin cannot change bad behavior. Or the law, excuse me, cannot change bad behavior. He's, the sinful nature is, is an untamable a, a, a thing within me. In fact, he says in verse 23 that sinful nature is waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. It's not just a, a simple thing. It is actively working against me. And in contradistinction, he says later on in chapter 8, what we'll get to next time, he says the law was powerless in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So simply knowing that something was wrong did not empower my life at all. Simply creating a, a more detailed list of rules and regulations didn't make me a better, nicer, kinder person, necessarily. Remember when I was first a believer, and I was reading the Bible for the first time, and I came to the, the, the epistle to the Ephesians, and I began to read it, and before long, I began to realize around chapter 4 that Paul had a lot of things that you were to do and to not do, and I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write all of these down, and, and then I'll just keep on rereading them every day until I develop the discipline that makes me uh, obey and not transgress any of these rules. And when I got to the end of the book, I had this long, long list of things that I could do, should do, and should never do. And I suddenly felt totally overwhelmed. I thought, by the time I finish reading the list, 
I've forgotten what was at the beginning of the list and I have to go back and start reading it again. And I soon discovered it didn't matter how much I knew about sin. I was powerless to change it. But the most painful thing about, about the law is that it shows me my disease without providing me a cure. You know, I'm like a man who has been abandoned on a sinking, leaking ship in the middle of an endless, trackless ocean. There's no sail, there's, there's no rudder, there's no motor, there's, there's no paddle. And somebody comes and says, here, I see you're in terrible shape. I've got something for you. And they hand me a compass. And then they sail away. And what I have now is a compass that tells me where I should be going. It's sending me, pointing me in a direction for a destination that I'm never going to reach. Is it any wonder that Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am? So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Well, Paul's response is to, first of all, despair of self-effort. Despair of the idea that somehow I can improve myself. And what he does is he cries out to God. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Notice that Paul didn't say, what do I need to do to fix me? Now, not only do we look at ourselves and say that, but when we look at other people's misbehavior, we say that to them as well. I would think by now, don't you know what the Bible says? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? How can you call yourself a, you know what I mean? You've heard this conversation? You've been part of it? You may have heard it said to you, you may be the giver of those kind of comments. And behind them is this assumption that you and I possess the power of transformation. That somehow we can change the intrinsic fallen nature of ourselves. Paul does not say, what do I need to do to get over my problem? He says, who will rescue me from my problem? The man on the sinking vessel doesn't need a compass telling him how lost he is. GPS is not going to help his situation one bit. What he needs is someone to come out to where he is and to rescue him and take him where he needs to be. And that's what Paul does. He cries out and says, who is going to save me from this body of death that I am living in? And the answer, as always, comes from God immediately. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting to me, somebody going through a, a, a very difficult marital time, the, uh, the husband has betrayed the marriage and has abandoned the family and, and really struggling and she's interacting with some people in a, on a, a prayer chain about her situation and the grief that she's dealing with. And one of the ladies wrote back, it was shared with me, and she made this amazing statement. Having gone through the very same thing that this woman was going through, she said, my ex didn't leave me or betray me. It was God's amazing love and grace repositioning me to experience him in ways that I never would have if my ex was still in my life. Isn't that interesting? Just a different perspective. One moment you're looking and saying, I have been abandoned, I have been betrayed. God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Why is this happening in my life? Now, when that happens, that moment, you're falling right into Satan's trap because that's what he wants you to do. He wants you to hate God for your circumstance because that's what he does. Satan takes no responsibility for his sin. Instead, he hates God and blames God 
for his own condemnation. And he seeks to seduce you into that same place so that we begin to think evil thoughts about God and begin to accuse God and say, God, how could you do this to me? And this woman, very by divine grace, this is the kind of insight and understanding that only comes through the Spirit revealing His truth in our life, suddenly looks at her situation and says, I am not a woman scorned. I am not a woman betrayed. I am not a woman abandoned. I am a child of God who has been divinely repositioned by His grace and His goodness to receive all the goodness that God can bestow upon my life. That this is not the end of my life. This is in reality the beginning of a life that I never imagined that God could have me. I am a child of His grace. And that's essentially what Paul is communicating to us here. He's saying, you know, it's, it's not a matter of how can I escape the bad that has happened to me or alter the circumstance, but God, reposition me. Move me into a new place where suddenly I can begin to operate on the basis of grace. Then I think, in, in, in short, that there are really three responses that, that we, can, we can make here, my recommendations, basically. That when you find yourself confronting sin in your life, and, you know, I'm operating under the assumption that you're in a place where you're seeking God enough that you're confronting sin in your life. I mean... You know, we say, you just need to be in the Word, read the Bible, but we, have to, we should put a warning on that. You know? it, the warning should be, as you read it, what you're going to discover is He is holy and you are not. <laughs> you're going to discover that He is God and you are not. There's going to be some revelatory moments where you're going to find, without fail, some area of slippage, at the very least, in your life. And when you come to that, your response is critical. If you start, stop and say, I need to redouble my efforts, you're going to find before long, you're just going to say, I can't do it. I give up. And then when temptation comes, you'll just give in and you'll go with it. And you'll have that moment of relief saying, gosh, it's so, it's so much easier just not to even try to follow the Lord. It's just so hard. It's just easier not to even try to be a Christian. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you're on a boat and they're throwing you overboard and the whale's coming and swallowing you. And, you, you know, it's just, it complicates. It doesn't get simpler. It gets more complicated. And, you know, when you've been basking in, in, in fish bile for three days, you know, you, you begin to rethink your position. No. How do you respond? My... My first recommendation is to do what we see Paul doing. We plead our weakness. We don't pretend our competence. We plead our weakness. God, this is who I am. I see my sin. Help me. Change me. Deliver me. Heal me. Restore. Rebuild. It's a cry for mercy, essentially. And I believe that the word mercy, when spoken from the heart of one of God's children, has an irresistible attraction to God. He loves that state of dependence, that state of needing. And when we cry out, say, God, have mercy upon me. That God's on you like white is on rice. He's on you like a pack of dogs and a three-legged cat. I mean, he's all over you, you know? It's... It's tossing meat into the lion's cage. Watch him go for it. It's, it's the reality that God is just attracted to that cry for mercy. He is turned off by the man or woman who says, I got this. I can do this. We used to have a phrase that we used to say. I don't say it anymore. But some situation would come up and we say, oh, that's a no-brainer. I didn't realize what that really meant is if you act on that, you have no brains. Because if the first response is saying, God, guide us, give us wisdom, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my ability to know what the best choice, the best decision is. If we don't come to him in that humility and say, God, we're pleading for your help, we're setting ourselves up for a stumble. But secondly, we need to be in pursuit of fellowship with God, not purity, not holiness. It's one of the subtlest traps 
See, holiness and purity come as a consequence of fellowship. But if we make purity and holiness our pursuit, our first objective, you've made that thing into an idol. And you will pridefully begin to boast in how holy you are. How much you fast, how much you pray. And you'll begin to hold these things up and saying, see how pure I am, how godly I am. And it's, it's like... It's like flatulence in a closed car. It just stinks the place up. And nobody's happy. But thirdly, if you want to grow, grow in grace. Don't grow in, in goodness. I know you're saying, well, it's wrong to be good. No, <laughs> it's very good to be good. That's why we call it good. Funny how that works out. But how do we get there? We grow in grace. David Roper, who at the moment is my favorite author, and my wife and I are reading everything we can get our hands on from him, but his definition of grace, came, I came across this last week. He said, grace is God's greatness flowing through our basic incompetence. Grace is God's greatness flowing through my basic incompetence. You see, it's that realization, God, I am not competent to love other people. I am not competent to serve. I am not competent to be humble. I am not competent to resist temptation. I'm not competent to keep my mouth shut when I want to blab. God, give me grace. So that when you see people who are doing great things, you need to understand it begin with a recognition, I am not competent, and therefore I fell on my knees and said, God, give me grace. Now there's more, but that's chapter 8. But let me close with one, just one short comment here. Recently, I, I heard a politician make this comment. He said, about his campaign, he says, we're going, or when he becomes president, he said, we're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. <laughs> um, so much bloviating nonsense, personally, um, because the simple fact is nobody ever gets tired of winning. You know what I get tired of? I get tired of seeing other people losing. Why do I want people to experience the grace of God? Why do I want to experience the grace of God? Because when I experience the grace of God, he says, we are more than conquerors. We're more than victors. How do you become more than a victor? He says, you've won it all, and yet there's even more. You've overcome, and yet there's even more. How do you become more? It's by grace and grace alone. It is not by being a rule keeper. It has the opposite effect. And I never tire of winning. And I don't think you ever tire of winning. But I do tire of seeing people lose because they don't know about grace. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in the name of your son, Jesus, that you would just clear away the, the, the cloud and the clutter, the, the fog of... That, that oftentimes keep us from being able to simply see the truth in its simplicity. That keeps us from being able to understand that it's all of you and, and none of me. That keep me striving to, to overcome and to prove and to demonstrate, not knowing that what really lies behind that is a heart of pride that wants to be able to say, look what I've accomplished. God, we're, that only leads us to the same place Paul was at when he said, what a wretched man I am. God, help us to plead, to cry out to you, Lord, and to invite you to be the, the power that enables us to overcome. You said we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We don't overcome by our own blood, our own sweat, and our own tears, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. 
Help us, Lord, to, to look to that and to trust in that above and beyond everything else we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we'll continue on to the time of worship. And, uh, um, and as we do, I always urge and encourage you to respond to God in some way. The worst thing in the world is to have God speaking into your life at a moment like this and have you simply uh, unhitch yourself from that moment and just go and, and get connected to something else. There's something powerful in those moments, that, that moment of quiet and that moment of repose before God when we sit back and we say, God, I've been hit today. I've been touched today. I've been challenged today. I, I see myself in a different way today, and I invite you, God, to transform my life. I'm asking for your mercy. I'm pleading for your grace. I don't want to be that person, but I want to be different. I want to be changed. And that's where the work of grace begins to work in our lives. The grace of God teaches us, Paul said. So if God is working in your life, I encourage you to respond as we take the elements, partake of the elements. Let's not turn this into another ritual or another work that we do. But instead, let it be an embracing of God's grace, His body, His blood that did it all for me. I, I did nothing for myself. He did it all for me. And He's working everything for my good and for His glory. And to embrace that, that this doesn't make me right with God, but it does set my soul right with myself because I become rightly connected. It's all of grace. It's not of me. If you don't know Jesus, myself and others who will be up here in front to pray would love to pray with you or talk to you or answer any questions that you have or any other need that you might have that maybe you're suffering from some painful thing in your life, we're here to pray with you as well as are the people who are sitting around you right now. But respond to God. Take advantage of the opportunity. I know some of you want to bounce out and grab your kids and uh, I mean, I only have one question. Why? <laughs> uh, they're having a good time. Let them finish their lesson and their fun thing they're good. Take this opportunity for you and receive his grace in new and rich ways.